This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. On today's podcast, we're going to hear exactly how hard it is for international bands to tour in the U.S. Visas to tour can cost thousands of dollars, and you have to book your tour before you get the visa. And if you don't get the visa, the venues who booked you are out of luck. We'll hear about that. Plus, we'll also hear from the band Portishead. They're celebrating the 25th anniversary of their debut album, Dummy, this week. They'll reflect on their innovative sound. It was a super kind of nerdy operation of ever-evolving methods of making this thing hang together but not be so in tune and not so out of tune. It was it was a really new way of thinking, I think. But first, we're going to hear about another band that formed 25 years ago, Slater Kinney. Slater Kinney is now out with her 10th studio album. It's called The Center Won't Hold. It's very hard right now to not become misanthropic or cynical. I think you have to fight those urges every day. And I think one theme that recurs on this record is the idea that connection is a way of staving off those uh, feelings of not just cynicism, but even, you know, just skepticism. That's Carrie Brownstein, a founding member of the band, who you might also know for co-starring in the TV series Portlandia. What a sad little tote bag. I know, I'll put a bird on it. Put Put a bird bird on it! Brownstein says connection is a form of hope. Among other things, the album explores the loss of human connection society has with the rise of technology. You hear it in the song, Can I Go On? And the future is here. I start my day on a tiny screen. Try to connect the ones right in front of me. Slater Kinney has been weaving social issues into their music for decades now. The band formed in Olympia, Washington in the mid-90s near Slater Kinney Road. They were also part of the feminist punk rock riot girl movement that was happening at the time, writing songs that covered politics, gender roles, and progressive perspectives. I asked Brownstein if she thought the music industry and society as a whole has been more welcoming of women since those early days performing as Slater Kinney. Sure, I think by all litmus tests, or I should say by many litmus tests, things have definitely changed. I mean, if you look at the sheer amount of women who play music in all kinds of bands, the numbers speak to a greater sense of parity, certainly on the charts. By that litmus test, I think we've definitely gotten to a a better place. Uh, I think there are still ways to go. I think that in a more nuanced way, the ways that people write about women and the the kind of inability to have somewhat nuanced conversations about women is, is a little trickier. I think it's that still, you know, where it intersects with age and and race and class, I think that that just takes a more complicated and long form process, I think. So there's, I think, still areas that are lacking, but I think generally 
yeah, if you survey the landscape, you see a lot more women out there and all kinds of women, which I think is really important. Yeah, I mean, even on this album, you were able to work with St. Vincent um, as a producer on this album. And I believe this is the first time you've worked with a female producer. What was that experience like? She's not just the first woman we've worked with. She's the first performer, sort of the first person who has her own you know, musical career as a performing artist. I think there's an understanding there uh, when it comes to vocal performances, you know, where she knew that it's very context specific, it's site specific. So yeah, I it would you know she would have us do vocal takes in in the afternoon, and then we would do it the next night. And I don't know, there was there was a lot of vulnerability that we were allowed, and a lot of joy as well. Slater Kinney took a hiatus between 2007 and 2013, and you've experienced a lot since then. Um, you've gone on to make uh, the TV series Portlandia. Corin was raising a family and made a solo record. But on this latest record, the song Love seems to be a love letter to the band Slater Kinney. You talk about the early days of touring. Towards the end, you hear the line, done with being told that this should be the end. So how do you think getting back together again after having those experiences under your belt has impacted your music? Yeah, I think it granted us perspective and also made us realize that we didn't want to take this for granted. You know, I think when you step away from something, you realize how important it is to you. And when we came back in 2014 to write and record No Cities to Love, there was a sense of urgency and a real want. And I think this is a band that requires a certain kind of desire and dedication because it is intense. And I think there's a lot of leeway that one is granted in the context of music you know, to have this 360 degrees of emotions and certain kinds of emotions that aren't really sanctioned in regular life. So I, I think we really relished that opportunity to explore rage and sadness and frivolity. And, you know, we, we just realized well, we don't have that in other aspects of our lives in terms of this outlet and also the connection with fans and the ability to play on stages and to have that energy reflected and and given back to you. So that, I think we, you know, that was a real return for us that felt like a renewal, not just a return. And so with a song like Love, I think what we're, it's very rare for us to be so self-referential, but I think we were speaking to platonic love and also it's a rumination on collaboration and creative partnerships and acknowledging that sometimes those provide the fulcrum for struggle and resistance. And so we're kind of celebrating the ways that we rely upon others to give us strength to, to keep going. And so I think in a broader sense, 
in addition to it being about the band itself, it's it's about all forms of of partnership and friendship. Yeah. Well, um, Janet Weiss uh, announced her departure from Cedar Kinney in July, saying that the band is heading in a new direction and it's time for me to move on. What do you think was that new direction that might have led Janet to leave the band? You know, it's really hard to parse someone's subjective interpretation or definition of different. From my perspective, every album we've done has been a deviation from the last. We've each had recording processes that were difficult or strenuous. You know, I mean, that's the nature of collaboration. That's the nature of any, any relationship. So I'm not, I'm not totally sure, to be honest. Uh, yeah, we were surprised and sad that she wanted to leave. So yeah, I mean, it's too bad because we were really looking forward to playing shows with her and we love her. She's one of our oldest friends. So it's, it's uh, sad, but I think at this point, Corin and I just have to keep looking forward. We feel very lucky to get to do this. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing thing to be able to, again, as you said, pour your soul into something, share your soul, and then have fans be able to connect to it um, and and be able to form a bond together as a band. And so I want to talk about uh, a few of the songs on this album. The song, Can I Go On? It has a lot of juxtapositions in it um, with lines like, everyone I know is bored, but everyone I know is floored. Um, and the line, everyone I know is funny, but jokes don't make us money, sell our rage, buy and trade. inspiration behind this song can i go on yeah i think can i go on in some ways it's about a woman's desire being used against her so it kind of becomes this dark sinister infectiousness and you know the the narrator is kind of on the brink of self-effacement or annihilation and she is grappling with the paradox of feeling despondent, but how that's at odds with this pressure to perform outward modes of joy or relatability or likability. And so I think it does grapple with those contradictions, uh, trying to find meaning in the, in the polarity, I guess, and trying to find a way to reconcile, I think, with depression and despair and the the need to present as as happy so yeah that's kind of what that song's about and, and also the the bigger juxtaposition is in the lyrics and the music because it's couched as something that is has a lot of melody but is is quite um quite dark lyrically 
Yeah. And I mean, I think that that notion of likability, I think, is something that a lot of us think about, um, especially as women. Um, How can I how can I be outwardly facing strong, but still, you know, and still be likable? And especially, you know, for for, you know, you and Corin, you know, to be so public facing um, and, and maybe you're struggling with something personally, but to to present that likability, that strength. Is that something that you and Corin talk about a lot? And if if. If let's say you know just internal struggles are you know may or may not be a part of your life, you know how do you how do you manage that and then and then keep that public persona? Yeah, I think it is tricky. We're in a strange time where you can't read an article without someone celebrating strong female characters and complex female characters in film and television and in books. But then when it comes to strong strong women in real life, I think people have a harder time reconciling some of those inherent contradictions, some of the transgressions, some of the, yeah, the, the things that are human and unsavory and not pleasing and not pure. I find that to be tricky that, you know, and you see it in, with women in politics, you see it with women in sports, you see it when anyone is actually just not the character that we wanted them to be, that we can't put them into a, a box or a silo and, and they deviate from our expectations. And I think, as you're saying, a lot of women are confronted with that when they do step outside of a, a role that's been assigned to them. Uh, you know, there's a lot of vitriol that comes at them on social media, sometimes in their own lives. And so, yeah, I think it's something that we, we think about and, and why, to me, I'm very perplexed by the fact that likability is a currency is something that, you know, is feels transactional. And I don't know exactly if, if it's worse because of social media and there's that kind of conflation of public and private. And you, you kind of have to invite people into your quotidian, you know, life and, so yeah, it's it's a, it's definitely it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting time, and I do think that men sometimes have a, a, a greater latitude for that. You know, when we assume the starting point, the default is that men are sort of a little more unrelatable. So the more relatable they are, they they are sort of rewarded for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, whether it's like a daddy blog or you know a, huh. someone doing something sweet, crying, you know, anything of that. But, you know, there, it's, there seems to be a, a tighter restraint around what women are allowed to do before they have made themselves less of a woman. That was my conversation with Carrie Brownstein of the band Slater Kinney. Their latest album, The Center Won't Hold, was just released. Well, the same year Slater Kinney became a band, Portishead released their debut album, Dummy. KEXP is celebrating Dummy's 25th anniversary on Thursday. KEXP will be playing this album throughout the day on Thursday with clips from Portishead breaking down each and every song on this album. KEXP's Morgan Chosnick recently interviewed Portishead to talk about the impact that album had. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Emily. So I understand Portishead approached 
you to do this interview. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. So uh, I've built a relationship with Jeff Barrow of Portishead because his other band, Beak, has been on KXP a couple of times over the last couple of years. So the first time in 2017, I was at the Off Festival in Poland where they were on the lineup there, and I was able to interview them live on the midday show that was broadcasting from there. And then they came through the next year, the KXP Studios in Seattle, uh, touring through the U.S., and I had them in studio on my show. So we had talked to each other a couple of times and he knew that I was a fan and he knew that KXP, of course, were fans, are fans of uh, all of his bands. So he reached out to me on Twitter and asked if we would like to interview them for the 25th anniversary of Dummy. And of course I said yes. Of course. (laughs) And so, I mean, this has been 25 years since this album is out. Why do you think this album is so, was so significant. Yeah, so at the time it came out in 1994, um, it, it, this is so silly to say, but it definitely defied genres. It crossed a lot of different genres in a way that sort of blew people's minds because there were all of these really recognizable genres that seemed to be melded into one really new and interesting thing. So you can hear aspects of hip hop. You can hear aspects of soul and funk and dub and rock and film scores. And all of these things were put together in the most unique, interesting way um, that still transcends today and, and it keeps people interested in it and it keeps people um, listening to the record over and over again. Well, you, in during your interview, so we're going to play clips of this interview, um, you asked Portishead and you interviewed two members, their names again, Jeff. Jeff Barrow and Adrian Utley were the, the two that I was able to interview and then Beth Gibbons is the, the singer in that project. Yeah. And so you you were asking them about, you know, kind of around the time that they were being signed. Um, And and I believe Jeff said, you know, at the time, like everyone in London wanted to sign the next Oasis. Right. And then we showed up and they were kind of like, hmm. So here is um, what they had to say just about their sound um, during the interview. We got signed. People really didn't know what to make of it. Um, And then I don't think that's entirely true, is it? I'm sure they did know what to make of it. Do you think they didn't? Well, I mean, they didn't know where to put it. I mean, it was it was a weird one because in America, um, especially, uh, the American music system is very like that's R and B, that's rock, that's hair metal, that's you know the country, and uh, you know it had obviously a history of electronic music and hip hop, but it wasn't hip hop. So when we signed, when we went into it was London Records in New York. Uh, through Universal, they kind of, they got it. They got some of it, didn't they? Because we had some weird requests. It was always that time of, yeah, well, if we do a, a, do a remix, a dance yes. remix, you know, we can, we can definitely decide, don't you dare. I mean, that's the other thing is that we've, we've never, ever done anything we've never wanted to do. So that was Portishead kind of describing their sound, kind of fusing genres. But then they were, they also went on to kind of talk about how they kind of messed with what you expect in music, kind of the rules of music, the rules of tonality. They would take what you're expected to do, like you think about traditional music theory, and then they just break all the rules. So here's what they had to say just about like the tonality of their sound. It was a new kind of tonality, really. It was kind of, you force two things together. And if you analyze it, which I did, um, why is that sound, why is that working? Because they're actually in different keys, but it doesn't 
anymore matter it doesn't matter anymore because we're in a new world you know we're not it doesn't matter that this one's slightly sharp of the other one or is actually in a different key if it sounds cool then that's kind of all you need to know because it would be in a because you had records that were in different tempos and uh different tempos different keys yeah so what we're saying is it was a super kind of nerdy operation of ever-evolving methods of making this thing hang together but not be so in tune and not so out of tune it was it was a really new way of thinking i think yeah you know yeah. i mean i mean i can't even imagine discussing this with musicians i i can now but at that time what what yeah. the hell were you up to you know what what were you doing so Morgan, is is there a song uh, that that you can point to that kind of that kind of defines this kind of sort of being in key but not too out of key that we can point to and take a listen to? Yeah, I mean, I think the perfect song is track one, Mister Ons, where there's this theremin, there's this rolling drum snare, uh, and then this beautiful vocal that comes over this like very sinister, groovy weirdly toned song and it and it sets the tone for the whole record Talking with Morgan Chosnick about Portishead's 25th anniversary of their debut album, Dummy. Uh, the 25th anniversary is happening on Thursday. So, Morgan, this conversation is is very, very pared down. You talked with Portishead for more than two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, two hours and 45 minutes. So the amazing thing about it, and I didn't know this until afterwards, but um, Jeff and Adrian hadn't really talked about Dummy like this since... It came out for 25 years. So they were very excited to go back in time and talk about how they all met, how Jeff was creating samples of his own and how Adrian heard him doing that. And he was like, what are you doing, man? That's crazy. You have to show me how to do that. And, you, and, and what does that mean, creating samples of your own? Yeah, so he was he was literally making his own um, sound samples and then putting them on a vinyl record. He would press his own record and then when recording the song, he would play that record back and use it for the scratching. So he was actually doing the scratching and then they would record the live instruments on top of it. So they're creating this old sounding thing themselves and they actually didn't use that many samples from other artists on this record. There's only four legal samples on there but besides that he was really just creating all of these sounds himself which is really mind-blowing to think about especially back in 1994 so he was saying that he wasn't using multi-tracks he was putting all of these sounds on a vinyl record and then re-recording it again with the with the live instruments and then beth would come in after the song was complete and put her own vocals on it and they they didn't tell her how to sing it she would just give them a tape back with her vocals on it and they're like yeah that sounds good so it's been 25 years later, and you kind of asked a question towards the end of your interview, wrapping this all up, and so I just want to play play this clip as they reflect on this album 25 years later. How do you feel about the record 25 years later, and 
what do you think the influence of it has been on pop culture and, and popular music since then? For me, it's a substantial part of my life. But, you know, it's a long, long time and there's a lot of... Uh, I feel really honoured that a lot of people... And this sounds so wicky to say these things, but it, it, I am... I do feel really honoured that actually people are still listening to this record all those years later and it's still... I still have people come up and talk about that record um, in the, in their own experience. Yeah, no, it's personal. It can be very... It's very personal to people. It's like that's, you know... And what more could you hope for, really, than to try and make something like some of the records that mean so much to all of us, or whichever, whatever they are, you know? I think... Sorry, but, but yeah. I think very early on, I think the thing that w one of us said was to make a record that survives your your record collection. So that was Porter's Head reflecting on 25 years since their debut album, Dummy, was released. It was released on August 22nd, and that is happening Thursday. So Morgan, um, I understand KEXP will be celebrating. How will we be celebrating? Yeah, we're so excited. We're going to be doing an all-day celebration of the album, Dummy, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. I'm filling in for John on the morning show that day. So uh, me and Cheryl and Kevin will all be playing every single song from the entire record and playing the interview clips along with that song since Jeff and Adrian and I broke down every single song on the record in depth. So uh, I'll be playing like the first four and then Cheryl and then Kevin from start to finish. And so you'll get to hear really in-depth information all day long about every single song on the record. And then uh, we'll also be posting a lot of the interview on our website, kxp.org. So you can find more information there on that day. But I hope you'll tune in to celebrate. That's right. That is on Thursday, August 22nd. So, Morgan, as we wrap things up, what's a good song we, we should leave folks with? I figure we should probably leave folks with the very first single that came out from Dummy. So this would have been the first song that the public heard on this record, and it's the song Numb. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm John Richards. And a subject we've talked about before here on Sound and Vision is the, well, that it's not easy to perform in the U.S. if you're actually not here living in the U.S. You have to apply for very expensive visas, and it's actually easier for international artists from our northern and southern borders to perform in Europe than it is to perform here. To explore why performing in the U.S. is so complicated for international artists and what that means for the music industry as a whole is our panel today. First off, thank you all for coming here this morning. We have Mario Abada, who books shows for the Nectar Lounge here in Seattle. Hello. Hello. How are you? Doing great. I'm a big fan of Nectar, so I'm, I'm glad you're here. Thank uh, you. We have Davis Bay and Diane Butler. They are both local lawyers who have worked on visas for musicians. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And on the phone, we have our friend Jason Corbett of the band's Actors. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How's the band doing? Uh, it just I'm just white-knuckling it, you know, just hanging on and having a blast. Good. I, we love the band Actors here at KXB, so it's, uh, it's treat to have Jason on the phone as well. Now, Jason, Vancouver is only 30 miles from Washington State's border, yet you've said performing in Europe is easier. Why is that? Well, there's really kind of no paperwork for us to get over there. We just fly over and we just get down to business and no problems at the border. And it's a it's uh, easy peasy. So when you head down here, 
it is difficult. I mean, mm-hmm. even even for me, I, I, it's so when I'm coming back from Canada, not even as an artist, mm-hmm. super you know complicated uh, to get down mm-hmm. here, but getting in, in, into Canada pretty easy, right? Yeah, we're pretty easy going up here, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll make no more Canadian jokes. Um, yeah, yeah, c- coming back home is always always nice and easy, and I, you know, I've heard I've heard varying stories about into Canada, but, um, for the most part, I think it's a fairly, uh, easy process. And do you associate any of this with, um, also kind of the, the way that these countries view their artists now in Canada, as you know, the, there's support from the government for the arts and for musicians, and you can actually put musician down in a lot of countries as a profession and get support in this country. That is not the case at all. Uh, and so uh, do you think the view of musicians and, and the creatives um, from the government is, is part of this issue? You know, to me, uh, the first thing that pops to mind is population. You, you've got such a wide audience in the U.S. that and so many like, population so high, you don't need more competition coming in. That might sound simplified, but then you you look at Canada, and it's almost like the government funding or the government uh, recognition of people in the arts is it's it's almost like subsidizing because without it, it would be so much harder to sustain because there's just not the the population to draw from in terms of you know developing an audience and stuff like that. That's kind of what pops to mind right away. What, so you don't need a, a visa to play in Europe, but can you talk about the visa you need to perform in the U.S.? Yeah, um, well, I, I'm familiar with the visa that we've had for the U.S., and it's called a P-2. And basically, um, the processing time can vary. Now, you can uh, apply for it and get it you know, when, when it's finished within X amount of uh, weeks or months. And then there's also an extra charge to uh, expedite it, which is almost double what the cost is to apply for it in the first place. And I feel, I feel like that even it's like, uh, it's almost like a cash grab, you know, it's like here, pay double and make sure you have it in time to actually cross the border, especially with musicians. If they're not, uh, you know, if they're more on the artsy side and not the business side, it can be challenging to get all your paperwork together. Um, the key for us has been really like making sure that we have enough of our contracts farther out that we can, make the the uh, application process as soon and as and as seamless as possible and also i i want to note it's it's in conjunction with working with the musicians union so really like we send our paperwork to the musicians union and then they process it but in there you also now have to be a member of the union so there's extra costs involved with that as well they're not huge but per band member you're looking at you know extra cost well, David and Diane, how much do visas cost for traveling artists? Well, it could be around three to $5,000 for the filing fees, but Jason and other Canadians are really lucky because there is a good exception for the P2 for Canadians where you go through the American or Canadian Federation of Musicians. And those who are from other countries don't have that streamlined process. You would have to first go through the... U.S. uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, Homeland Security. Then you have to get your visa from the Department of State, where a consular officer might decide, even though immigration says you are great, they wonder about whether you are really going to do what you say you're going to do. And then there's a third bite at the apple from the government, the immigration officers at the border, 
Customs and Border Protection, who again might scrutinize to uh, decide whether or not you're going to get to come in that day. That, how do you pay for that? As a, as a and Okay, an artist already doesn't have a lot of money to begin with. But it, it, clearly, this is enough to stop you from traveling and performing music around the world, correct? It does become a big challenge for artists. Well, we had an artist, uh, we had this band, Soviet Soviet, try to come into the country, and this became a problem. And they were not only stopped, they were held uh, for days and days and days. We're talking an Italian band that, you know, I think of bands <laughs> coming up from a country on any of the lists that now exist. Is it consistent, the, the bands coming in and, and the visas that are, that are issued with the countries that they're coming from? There is a higher level of scrutiny depending on when, what country you're coming from. So long as you have a contract for your performance and you're able to show that you're going to do what you said you were going to do, there really should not be a problem. So even if there is some holdup at the border, you can unwind it. It's those who decide that they are not going to be honest and who are maybe not clear on what the requirements are, who run into trouble. And they might end up getting detained at an airport in the United States and then sent back the next day. Well, I, you know, that's what um, their issue was, the confusion. Like, when, I remember they were just confused. A manager just missed some of the paperwork and they were held for days as if they were coming in to, I, I don't know, do yeah, what? Criminal activity. <laughs> yeah, criminal activity <laughs> when they were just trying to come here and play music. And uh, it, it, it fries my brain. Jason, what were you going to say? Um, I was just going to say, like, I think I have a sneaking suspicion that there's some artists that have uh, tried to come into the U.S. Um, from other countries that have said, oh, um, yeah, we couldn't get in because uh, the president's cracking down on this and that and the U.S. is this type of country. And you know, But really, they just were trying to be a little sneaky or they w- didn't have their paperwork properly filed and, and far enough out. That's what my theory would be because – if you're on social media and you're a band and you've booked a tour, what are you going to say? Oh, man, sorry, guys. We messed up our paperwork and didn't do it properly and tried cutting corners. Or the USA really tried to keep keep us down. We're artists, you know? Like <laughs> I feel like there's a little bit of fog there. Well, I've also heard it's gotten worse since 9-11, correct? I would say so, yeah. There's also... Because I toured... Sorry, go ahead. The executive order by American, hire American, which also seems to include play American. Yeah, I, I would agree. Mario, now you you get uh, you and I understand uh, Canadian artists get help through the visa process and uh, even get uh, some of their tours are actually funded, which sounds crazy down right. here. We would never do that. Uh, <laughs> that's not the case everywhere. And international bands you've worked with outside of Canada, how, how, what's been your experience on how hard it is for them to to get visas? I think they just have a lot of obstacles, whether it's with to touring the U.S. Um, if you're from a country on the other side of the world, the size of your fan base here in America, you know, maybe it's there. Maybe you're trying to develop it. So to come and tour here in America to t- try to develop that fan base comes with a huge risk. All the expenses of getting into the country uh, you know, un- uncertainty as far as whether these gigs you've booked are going to work out financially to offset those costs uh, coming here. And not to mention all the ways that the paperwork and the visa application process can go wrong. Your reputation as a band um, being largely on the line if those gigs have to cancel for some reason. And then a lot of uh, red tape with taxes you also have to navigate as an artist. So I, I think... There's just a lot 
uh, you'd have to have a very strong incentive to come and tour the U.S. if you're an artist from the other side of the world. And and mostly it's going to be artists that know they have the fan base here to uh, to really make that worth it. So talk about the cancellation and just the impact. I think people may not know, you know, mm-hmm. what has to happen when booking shows and how booking shows work. So they have to have a show confirmed. Is that... Yeah, artists are sort of expected to play a bit of a juggling uh, act in order to actually get their visas approved and get into the country. On one hand, they're expected to have a full tour booked and turn in their contracts and their paperwork to the uh, in order to get their visas. On the other hand, if you're a booker for a, a venue like mine, you're going to want to know that they're cleared to perform in the U.S. before you book the show, right? Um, and I think if you're a venue that has a, a set intention of hosting uh, artists from around the world, then you're you're going to be more understanding about that sort of thing. But there's going to be lots of venues that just aren't going to want to take the risk of an artist potentially having to cancel. They're not going to want to be the first gig um, after a border crossing, for example, Bookers are paying attention to that sort of thing, and um, they're definitely scrutinizing it. Can I ask you a question as a booker? Uh-huh. Does it stop you? Do you? Do, do I know Nectar does. I mean, there's not a lot of clubs that are booking international acts. Do you look at that and say, "God, this is not worth it"? That we just, we this is so much. At Nectar, we really don't because we really do have a, a set intention of hosting international artists. We want our venue to be a place where cultural exchange happens, and that's a value we have. And so we we make a point of jumping through um, maybe kind of the extra hoops or, or taking the extra risks that come with hosting international artists. But I think in general, that's not a risk every venue or every booker is going to take. And, and there is definitely a track record with certain artists in particular of, you know, them trying to take all the right steps, trying to get all the right paperwork, and then somewhere along the line, something goes wrong, and then they have to cancel their tour. And that can only happen so many times before, you know, that network of promoters around the country that booked that show goes, ah, n- not again, not next time, right? How many cancellations have you dealt with lately? Well, lately is relative, but um, <laughs> I, I can tell you I had a Jamaican artist cancel due to visa processing delays. Um, Last within the last month, um, and yeah, over the years, yeah, many. So, what 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 would be your advice, either of you, um, for these artists that that like if you could give, I don't know, maybe you do your your top bits of advice to to reduce this kind of impact I have on money and career and cancellations. What would it be? Well, the challenge is the regulations for visas don't match reality. If you're an up and coming artist, if you don't have a lot of money or if you don't know the schedule of your performances, navigating the various visa categories is probably unlikely to work out for you. So, of course, it would be great for us to know as much as possible, as early as possible. But then we have to navigate these visa categories to see if it's ever going to work out for you. The, The most common category people come over on, which is inappropriate, is the visitor for business, which is the easiest and quickest visa category to come over. But for a professional musician, you can't play under that category. And that's where you get that question of, are you coming over legally or not? The other really important thing to remember is we have this extreme vetting executive order. And now these 
artists are coming over and they put things on their social media accounts, which now need to be put into various databases. So when they come over, the government officer could actually Google them and say, wait a minute, you're playing a, a show. And therefore, we're going to deny you for misrepresentation. Can, so they can look at any post or any – could you look at a post and say, oh, you're anti-Trump or you're, you said something derogatory towards the United States? Could you take from that and stop someone from coming in? I don't think that's as important as whether they're going to come here and work unauthorized. Um, and Davis, you, you've had to work with international bands that have played here at KXB before. Can you talk about some of the loopholes that, that they've had to go through for just being right here at KEXP? Yeah. So one of the categories that you're allowed to come over as a visitor for business is for an international competition. So if you have an international competition that you can right. create, then they're coming over here for that specific purpose. Suddenly that purpose is legal. Um, but you have to have that coaching involved to let the artists know what they're going to say. Um, then you have to have the background here. So it is not uncommon now for USCIS to simply call the venue and say, do you know of this band or an individual mm -hmm. member? And if whoever happens to pick up the phone says, I don't know about that, they can actually revoke or deny someone's entry. How does this compare to other people coming into work in the U.S., just, just coming in for business? Is this totally similar? Is this My only experience is knowing musicians coming in. I've never had to come into the U.S. to work. I work here. But is this similar? It is more challenging, largely because of the plans and the uncertainty of where the artists might travel. They might have an itinerary where they're going to go, whereas somebody who's coming in for a job is going to have, you know, a full-time 365-day-per-year job. So it does make a difference. One way that can help to get the longer period of stay is at least try to secure uh, secure a gig on the front end and the back end. And then sometimes if you have a little bit less definition in the middle, then you'll go ahead and be granted the, uh, granted the visa for the full period of time. But that doesn't always work. I had a band who was coming in some time ago. The first time they got their, their uh, P2, they were granted it for a full six-month period, uh, band mostly playing down around Texas. The second time, they had a definite gig on one day and a few things that were definite thereafter. So the Immigration Service granted them their visa for one day. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it is a bit of a challenge. Well, what, what's the idea? What do they think is going to happen? Is it, is it, the, is it, is it paying taxes? Is it, is it you can't... What is the main Taking issue? Taking jobs for Americans, yeah. If you come in question. and travel, like I don't, yeah. like, sometimes we forget what's the what's the issue? Like what what is going to happen? Because I, maybe you just have a view of artists that's different than all of ours where they're coming in to create and and and, and show their culture. And uh, we had a recent panel here recently where one of our artists, he gets to travel and he knows people aren't going to be able to travel and he brings international artists in just so they can experience that country. And I think we're missing out on that. And the environment right now seems to be making it worse. But I can't think of who loses here if they come into the country to perform music. Yeah. I do think from the highest level there's an agenda. But for the lower level officers, I, I think they're lacking direction and training. Okay. Uh, if you take a look at who controls immigration, it's Homeland Security and three sub-agencies. All of them are being run by acting directors. In other words, we have temps running the entire immigration program. They don't have the experience and policy to understand how to run the organizations well. So I don't think the officers necessarily at USCIS have an agenda, but I will say the officers at the border, 
the CBP have this attitude of we are protecting our country and everyone is an intending immigrant until you can prove otherwise. And there's actually memos out there saying we will reward you for denials rather than approvals. Now, Jason, um, let me ask you a question about playing in the U.S. What, I mean, mm. what's the benefit of playing in the U.S.? Is, and is it worth the trouble you go through to play here? Well, um, I avoided coming down to the U.S. for a long time for the very reason that it was it seemed very costly to try and develop an audience. Um, again, going back to like population, people like exposure to larger markets. Actors started out um, going over to Europe first, actually. And when we first thought about coming to the States, the crowd wasn't there. So it's only later on that we started getting traction that we thought, okay, let's go. We'll play New York, Seattle, uh, L.A. And then what I find, found was it's like, oh, wow, you can see from our online analytics just through sheer volume, there's people that there's an audience there. And once you tap into that audience, uh, now – the U.S. markets, uh, the cities in the U.S. are our biggest markets. So I think it's an exposure to um, that population of people who consume music and pop culture. Uh, Maro, you said that uh, it was part of the values of Nectar to have international artists play there, to have their culture and their music and their ideas at at the club. That kind of answers my question about um, why you, you do this. What is the impact when they can't get into this country? What is the impact on our music scene when international artists can't perform here? I think ultimately if if it continues to be difficult for artists to get into the country and there's kind of a slow trend toward less and less international artists uh, coming in to perform – we're just going to have a, a a more insular music scene, which I think is a sad, mm-hmm. you know, a sad state of affairs. I, I think we're far from that at this point. I think it's it's super important that hopefully other venues around the country are being intentional about uh, kind of tolerating some of the extra loopholes that come with hosting international heart artists and and making that choice to take those risks. You know, something that popped into my head too, Davis, Diane, maybe, maybe this is not a thing, but, um, you know, when we have these policies, there's retaliation from other countries, be it tariffs or be it treaties we break or anything else. Have we seen any countries, um, do our artists have trouble in other countries more now that you know of that they didn't before? Like, I'm, I didn't even think about like, our, what about our bands? What What is their experience going to these countries? Yeah, trade wars definitely impact <clears throat> immigration going both ways. Um, I, I remember that when we had a salmon war with Canada, suddenly we had problems getting into Canada and the officers there were, were tougher. There because is of the a salmon war. Because of the salmon war. We have a connection between economics and art and visa crossings. I think it's something to remember, too, is the economics of all this. When you have a musician who can't come in, the venue gets hurt. The people who support the venue gets hurt. Mm-hmm. All the people who are coming in to stay at hotels to see the musicians get hurt. And I represent some pretty large casinos in Las Vegas where they've seen a drop. So when you think about it from a country like Canada, they're saying, we'll make it easy for you. And you could come to Vancouver at our venues to play. There's an economic reason why we should be welcoming the musicians as well. And, and let me ask both of you as well. Why do you do this? What, what is it what about this particular thing uh, motivates you? I really, really enjoy helping uh, people navigate the process. 
um, and uh, helping them f- understand that there are three parts of the process and how to prepare for each. I think one good tip uh, for getting the visa once you're at the embassy or consulate is dress up. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, uh, you know, artists sometimes uh, are, uh, prefer T-shirts or casual clothes, but put on a shirt with a collar and wear a watch. That's something that can really, really help, you know, stand up straight, speak clearly. Those little things can really, really help with the consular officer. Some of them have 90 seconds in which they will interview the applicant. And they uh, have a lot of self-confidence, the consular officers, and they believe they can make that judgment in that short a period of time. So you have to know what are the high points to present in order to get that visa stamp in your passport. That's advice I'd give someone for a job interview. (laughs) But usually they go longer than 90 seconds and determine your ability to walk into a country. But good advice. Davis. Not with my jo- not with my job interviews. <laughs> well, I interview DJs. You would actually be penalized if you walked in with that same outfit. But uh Davis, why why what for you is, is motivating? I mean you've saved us and some artists. So I you know, a few times. Yeah, it's nice. I've been doing this for twenty five years, as yeah. has Diane. We've been friends for a long time. I'm an immigrant. I'm from Korea and um I've always believed in music without borders. I believed in culture without borders. And I think this particular culture has lost its sense of the importance of the immigrate, immigration process. Um, one of the agencies of the government literally took out the phrase nation of immigrants from its mission. And that's where we are now, is that we've lost that battle and we need to get it back. And I think that valuing immigrants, valuing other cultures is going to help us as a society. Well, uh, I, I thank all of you for the work you're doing. And, uh, and Mario, is there is there somebody... Um there's someone uh, in the next coming month or so uh, that we should all see at Nectar that you have worked hard to, to get into the, the country and play here. Yes, I'm a big fan of Hun Hur Tu, who is coming uh, September, end of September. Um, they're from Tuva. Yep. Uh, Wax Taylor is an incredible French musician that's coming. Uh, Nightmares on Wax from the UK. you got a good lineup. Um, Quantic, also from yeah. the UK. Uh, we have Nova Lima coming from Peru in November. There's more, but that's off the top of my head, <laughs> some ones pretty, I'm excited about. That's pretty yeah. good off the top of your head. Yeah. Uh, thanks to everybody. Jason, thanks for uh, for calling in. Uh, I assume you're up Thank there you. in Vancouver right now, right? I am, yes. Yeah, and you just heard that uh, Vancouver is going to be a more attractive place for even more people to go to in this interview. So you're, you all are dealing with what we're dealing with in <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> Come on up. <laughs> Actors is an amazing band. They've uh, uh, been on KXP a number of times, and uh, we appreciate Jason Stein. Mario, thank you. Keep up the good work over there at Nectar. Thank you. And uh, Davis and Diane, thank you both for being here today and, and keep up the good work. And I'm sure we'll be calling Pleasure. on you again because these issues keep coming up. Uh, I'm John Richards, and you're listening to Sound and Vision. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. And I'm John Richards. And this week, Emily, we ask listeners on KEXP during the week to answer one of our questions. And the question was your first live show. Not to put you on the spot, but what was your first live show? So you got to understand, this was like sixth grade. It was 1999. And uh, one of my friends... Invited me to go see Backstreet Boys. Nice. And the Pontiac Dome, I think. 
uh, which was massive, and they were flying, and and that was my first show. Not not a proud KEXP moment, but uh, you know, proud sixth grade Emily was was pretty happy. I bet, and <laughs> that was the you know the there's kind of two sides to that answer. It's either a really good cheesy answer, yeah. or it was like a kick ass first show. I, I never really went to shows. So, so you got to see live music way before me. I did win Wang Chung tickets when I was in sixth grade. Wait, Wang Chung, what was that hit? They're going to Wang Chung tonight. Oh, yeah. Dance Hall Days? Yeah. Come yeah, on, yeah. all the hits. Yeah. And I won those tickets from the Zoo FM, KZZU in Spokane, Washington. Uh, and they w- and I went to pick them up. I was so excited to see the radio station and they wouldn't let me fr- pass the front desk, which even today influences that I, anytime I see kids anywhere near the station, I show them around. Um, so I got these tickets, but then my mom wouldn't let me go. So I couldn't Wang Chung that night. Aww. So that was going to be my first show. <laughs> Fast forward many, many years and went out to Eastern Washington University with a few friends and saw Jane's Addiction as my very first show. I was both scared for my life and and excited because I wanted to be a part of whatever was happening up there on stage. And Perry Farrell, he he was so out of his mind. He they played like thirty minutes, and they're the headliner. And so for the longest time, I thought headliners just play thirty minutes. I'm like it's it's all right, but it's not very long. And then later, I realized he was probably under the influence of a few things, and they had to quit early, I guess. So anyway, that was my first show. So we sent it out to people. What was your first show? One of the reasons being that the Rolling Stones were in town, and I was getting tons of people writing in about seeing them the first time. So Yeah, so we had so many people talk about their very first shows of live music. My name's Tommy. I'm from the Chicago suburbs. My first rock concert was my dad got us tickets to see the Rolling Stones at Soldier Field in 1997 on the Bridges to Babylon tour. Uh, We had super high up seats. There were like 100,000 people there. But from way up above, I can remember Mick Jagger uh, swaggering across the stage and changing costumes and like leopards print pants. Um, And in front of us, there were some people who had brought uh, illegal substances. And I asked my mom, my mom was with us, uh, mom, what's that funny smell? And she said, oh, just ignore it and cover your face in your jacket. So I remember through half the concert, just having my jacket over my face because of the, the smell of pot <laughs> was everywhere. Uh, at the end, I remember my dad got me uh, the Bridges to Babylon uh, t-shirt, which looks like the uh, the lions at the Art Institute. And uh, I remember sitting in the car on the way home and my dad playing the Rolling Stones' greatest hits. And I kept thinking to myself, man, they have a lot of amazing songs. And I particularly remember thinking uh, Get Off My Cloud was the favorite of the night. My name is Stephanie, and I am from Seattle. Uh, My first concert was for my 10th birthday. My mom took me to see Janet Jackson. She even sprang for uh, seats in the amphitheater rather than the lawn for the Rhythm Nation tour. And she, uh, there was one thing she forgot, though, because she just wasn't thinking, I guess, and that was earplugs. So by the fourth song, 
I was in total agony. I may managed to make it to my favorite song at the time, which was Black Cat, and then I was practically in tears. So my mom took me to the back of back of the theater, and I just couldn't take it, not even with toilet paper in my ears, um, and nobody had earplugs. Um, and I was super hysterical and sad that I was missing this opportunity, and I thought about what my friends and my dad and my little brother would say. So she suggested we just spend some time going uh, for a drive because the big theater was in her hometown. And so she gave me a tour of her hometown and the concert was indeed so loud that um, we had Janet Jackson playing in the background as we ran around her hometown. Hi, I'm uh, Hoy Wells, and uh, I live in Kenmore, Washington, and this is the story of my uh, first concert. Uh, Year's 1985, I saw Breakfast Club, fell in love with it, uh, very transformational. I was 14 years old, loner kid, really loved the Simple Minds song uh, from the soundtrack and found that they were playing in Washington, D.C. Uh, that fall, I found some older kids who would take me, a 14-year-old, with them to go see the concert. And uh, that Monday night uh, in November, we left to go see it. It had been raining the whole time. An amazing concert. Simple Minds was great. You know, just transformational for a 14-year-old. But that night, driving back, it's still raining, really late. Cars hydroplaning, have to keep the driver up. You know, and we're sort of joking on the way in, you know, oh, what if it's the end of the world and they've evacuated everybody and, and you know, it's a nuclear war or something. And so we get back to, to our home and drop me off and my mother is freaking out because it turns out this is one of the biggest flood events in that area in 1985. They call it the election night floods. And uh, they literally were evacuating all of the towns upstream from where we were living. And this is pre-sale days. So I can only imagine as an adult, the, the panic that my mother was going through. But I'm really glad she let me go. It was a great concert. Thanks to everyone who wrote in this week at soundandvision at kexp.org. And thanks to you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It makes a huge difference in letting other people know that this podcast exists. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can also make a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org sound. And as we wrap up this podcast this week, we asked Carrie Brownstein of Slater Kinney why music matters. I think music matters because it affects us on both a personal level and a collective one. It's a medium that gets under our skin. It fills our hearts and our heads. It becomes a soundtrack to a moment, to a relationship, to a week, a week, to an entire year. And I think it makes those moments and connections grander, more comprehensible. Uh, at the same time, it is ambient 
and environmental, it's atmospheric. So music allows us to see ourselves in, in someone else in a different place. It allows us to step outside of our, our lives, especially when they're lonely or isolated, but also when they're elevated and joyful and to exist on a platform upon which we can also view other people and, and have a sense of ourselves as part of a, a greater whole and a greater purpose. And I think because of that, because music is both granular and totally maximal, it is one of the most expansive and glorious things that we've ever been gifted in this life. 